Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is session number 61. And today, Maggie and I uh, continue slash complete our holiday series here um, with our second week in a row on the Christmas Carol. We did two weeks on the Christmas Carol last year. We have to be careful because it soon is going to become a tradition, right? Uh, if we're not careful, doing two sessions on Christmas Carol every year. I'm kind of okay with that. Yeah. It's very festive. Yeah, it is. It is. But we're usually so topical, like, you know, skimming the surface. It's kind of fun to dig into a little bit more detail of some of this stuff. So that's Yes, exactly. So today, that's what we're doing. Um, we, we So last time, we did. Uh, we continued our openings uh, sequence uh, uh, series, looking at the opening, both the opening of the Christmas Carol book and then the opening of uh, three out of the six Christmas Carol adaptations that we looked at last time. Um, and uh, today we're going to return to the same adaptations. Um, but the goal today, so looking at openings, is one way of isolating a particular scene to look at, right? Another thing we wanted to do is to look at, to choose other moments. Um, I think I think there are a few different um, ways that we could do. I think, I, I can think off the top of my head of four different approaches to side-by-side -side comparisons to like, like this, all of which would be fun, right? One is openings. Just for Christmas Carol which, or general? No, just, just in general, right? I'm, cool. I'm, I'm totally digressing now. Um, so one is to do openings like we've yeah. been doing, right? Another obvious one is to do closings. Right. Last final scenes uh, in all of them. That's also a really obvious, but a really good. But see, the thing about those is that it's those are scenes that are not just like interesting and appropriate to put in in parallel. Those also have this like additional external pressure because of the first and last thing that you see. Right. So mm -hmm. um, whereas it would also be cool to do two other things, which is one, which is what we're doing today which is to choose a like crucial pivotal scene, right? A really, really, really important scene, um, which is, which seems to be really at like the heart of the whole story. Mm -hmm. um, a core you know, moment. Right. Right. So like, for instance, I would consider like the scene in which the ring is thrown into the cracks of doom as the parallel kind of like the, the obvious parallel scene to choose in the Lord of the Rings. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when looking at, Lord of the Rings adaptations, for instance. Um, and with The Christmas Carol, it was easy. Well, I thought it was pretty easy. Let's look at that moment when Scrooge wakes up, that moment of change, right? When he first... It's a clear climax point on our little diagram. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And he, now, of course, in all of the versions, Scrooge has, like, been changing during the course of the, conver you know, the chapters with the different spirits, right? So it's not like... He's unchanged, unchanged, and then whammo, he changes. But that moment when he wakes up and he's now no longer having a dream experience, but now he is going to be like, what is it going to look like for him to change in the real world? And how is that going to be handled by the storytelling, right? Um, that's, that's sort of the moment. So we take this sort of central moments, pivotal moments. Um, the fourth way, by the way, that I can think of doing it is to choose not an intrinsically important scene, but like a random scene. Which is just okay. which which is sort of parallel. Um, just to, you know, it doesn't have to be an important moment, but especially if we're looking at an adaptation, uh, multiple adaptations, to pick some random scene that all of them have, and just put them side by side to see what they do in that not intrinsically, you know, mm -hmm. crucial scene. Yeah, I I always like moments like our first reveal of the protagonist. Mm -hmm. You know, so like 
they would all have that. What is our first image of that right. main character? What description do we have from the text? And what are we being shown on screen? Because often they are real different. And yes. that's a real fun one to look at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. But so today is our, what, what we're going to do with Christmas Carol today is kind of we're going to do that, that third paradigm. Right. As I say, we're going to do we're going to look at this at this moment, which is just a, a, a crucial moment where really in a lot of ways both the original story and the adaptation have the opportunity to sort of show what's this all about, right? What is the heart of this matter? If this is the moment where things, you know, this is the dramatic reveal. This is the, this is the climax, right? This is the turning point. Um, what do they do with it? What do they, what do they show? How do they accomplish that? And what do they do? Um, so that's what we're going to what we're going to be looking at today. And we said and this is something that we might come back and do with other um, with other uh, films and, uh, you know, film book combinations that we've been looking at. So back to the Christmas Carol now, the moment Scrooge wakes up. So we'll start with the book and then we promised we were going to do the films in reverse order because um, we did them early or to spirited. late last time. And then we, we only got to talk about spirited for like three minutes at the end of the time last time. So we're going to reverse it. We're going to talk about the book, then we're going to talk about Spirited, and then the Muppets, and then uh, the old one. Um, all right. So here is the book version. Yes, and the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own. The room was his own. Best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own to make amends in. I will live in the past, the present, and the future, Scrooge, re Scrooge repeated as he scrambled out of bed. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. O oh, Jacob Marley, heaven and the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees, old Jacob, on my knees. He was so fluttered and so glowing with his good intentions that his broken voice would scarcely answer to his call. He had been sobbing violently in his conflict with the spirit, and his face was wet with tears. They are not torn down, cried Scrooge, folding one of his bed curtains in his arms. They are not torn down, rings and all. They are here. I am here. The shadows of the things that would have been may be dispelled. They will be. I know they will. His hands were busy with his garments all this time, turning them inside out, putting them on upside down, tearing them, mislaying them, making them parties to every kind of extravagance. I don't know what to do, cried Scrooge, laughing and crying in the same breath and making a perfect, uh, perfect Laocaon of himself with his stockings. Footnote, Laocaon, of course, was the Greek dude um, who, or the Trojan dude, technically, um, who uh, uh, sort of uh, urged against bringing the Trojan horse into Troy um, and as a consequence got strangled by snakes. That's the comparison is that he's like trying to put his socks on and making such a hash of it that he's tying himself up like Lauka on with malignant uh, snakes. Quite the obscure reference <laughs> under the circumstances. Okay. <clears throat> I am light as a feather. I am happy as an angel. I am merry as a schoolboy. I am as giddy as a drunken man. A merry Christmas to everybody. A happy new year to all the world. Hello there. Whoop. Hello. He had frisked into the sitting room and was now standing there, perfectly winded. And then he looks around the room and he sees all the things that he saw before, which convinces him um, that it's all true. It all happened. And then, of course, we get the transition to um, him not being sure how long he's been asleep. And so he 
opens the window and he calls out to the boy in the street below who tells him that it's Christmas and he's delighted and he sends the boy off to buy the huge prize turkey in the window next door um, and gives the boy a generous tip. So um, so that is that is. Uh, I, I, I wanted to, I, I want to read the entire passage, but I wanted to go through the um, uh, and of course, he's he's very cheerful and kind to the boy an intelligent boy what a delightful boy um uh remarkable and, lad. and all of that stuff remarkable lad exactly um so of course his uh extreme kindness and generosity of speech of course designing to contrast with the chilling effect of his presence and his speech uh at the beginning of the book okay so here it is this crucial moment this crucial turning point what are things that we see in him. What 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 stuff jumps out at you, Maggie, is sort of most important about what Dickens is coming down on here in the beginning. Yeah, it's hard for me to remove film, so we have to just kind of let's just start with just text of what yeah. what really jumps out at you. And for me with Dickens writing, it's all those similes, it's all those comparisons. I'm Giddy's a school boy or Giddy's a drunken sailor and Mary's a schoolboy. Right paint such a picture it's so visual that it it already lends itself to a visual medium which i quite like mm-hmm. um so mm-hmm. i i like this kind of personification of change it's i'm everything different from what i was before and let me list out all of the things that are different but i like that that's juxtaposed with the sameness of the space that he's in like the sameness is what grounds him yes because everything is exactly as it's supposed to be he believes it yes if everything else had changed he wouldn't believe it and therefore he wouldn't have changed yes. so like keeping that setting the same and then feeling the change purely and only within him mm-hmm. i think is quite important and what we will probably talk about in these three adaptations. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That, um, it is a heavy contrast on, as you say, the, the way nothing around him has changed and his, the gratitude, right. With which he perceives that nothing has changed. Um, it's a, it's it's, pure. Yeah. It's a really huge deal. Um, and it really does emphasize the change is all internal to him, even in a book. And I say even in a book because like, interiority is one of the things that I think in general can be harder in film than it is in books because you have Definitely. a narrator who can just you... tell us what the person is thinking. And as soon as you use voiceover, I feel like so many people have a chip on their shoulder about voiceover that as soon as you hear it, half the audience is like, oh, mm-hmm. and the other half is, OK, I guess you have to tell me. Right. But in interior views in text is so much easier to access that it's very right. appreciated. But even here, like even given that, even given the advantage of text. And so, I mean, he can Dickens can say things like he was so fluttered and so glowing with his good intentions that his broken voice would scarcely answer to his call. It is manifested outwardly, right? But he begins by telling us uh, that his good intentions exist, right? Whereas again, in in a film, you don't have a, you don't have the vehicle to just say, to just automatically convey he was glowing with his good intentions, right? Um, And yet, as I say, Dickens is going pretty far out of his way to emphasize all of the internal change that has happened. with Even in the text... That's getting externalized 
in certain ways, right? Um, his own, how radically disordered his mind is from his usual, right? The, the business with his clothes, right? And the, um, the Homer reference, the unexpected Homer reference with his socks, right? Um, is, that seems to me a way in which Dickens is trying to point, because like what, it's not just that he's running around being crazy, right? The thing is, he is trying to get dressed. That is to say, he is trying to perform what is a perfectly normal and mindless routine, right? Mm -hmm. The same thing that he's done every day that he's woken up, right, for, you know, functionally for his whole, presumably for his whole adult life. His getting dressed routine is more or less the same, right? And yet he can't even do that normally. Can't even do that. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, you know, his his hands were busy with his garments all this time, turning them inside out, putting them on upside down, tearing them, mislaying them, making them parties to every kind of extravagance, including apparently nearly strangling himself with his own socks. <laughs> making them party to every kind of extravagance. I love that. Like, it, he's just he's just messing. He's right. just messing. Right. Yeah. Uh, so this there's this sense of like manic energy to Scrooge mm -hmm. there. Right. But I think that the really important thing is that disruption um, is just disruption to, um, uh, to 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 routine. Right. He's not things are not normal anymore. He can't he, he even in the even in the simplest things, he cannot simply in the state that he is in, he cannot simply fall into his normal behaviors, right? right? Even perfectly neutral and unimportant behaviors like putting on his socks, right? Um, even mm -hmm. that is disrupted. Um, and that, again, seems to be a way to sort of point by a kind of synecdoche, right, to how thoroughly disrupted his whole approach to his life is. Um, and as you say, that final phrase, making them parties to every kind of extravagance. Now, the word party was used, I mean, we use the word party only in legal documents and when we're talking about parties, right? Uh, celebrations. Um, uh, so the word didn't have fully, I mean, in, so when a modern person uses like the word party, we always are thinking about like festive parties first, right? That would have been less true, I think, in the 19th century. Um but um, but nevertheless, the word extravagance still conveys a similar kind of thing. Like they are being made parties to extravagance. That they're not just victims of extravagance. They're not just. Yeah. It's like he's celebrating with his clothes, right? But like, I like that it makes it sound like an accomplice too. You know, right. like they are party to an extravagance. Like they are planning some <laughs> festivities. You know, his, exactly. his club or his the, the, His clothes are playing games with him. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a lot of personification into these stockings. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, so, th I mean, that's a really interesting touch. Now, I agree with um, Mrs. Manrique was saying that um, when Dickens, when the narrator tells us that he was so fluttered and so glowing with his good intentions, he's already conveyed it. He doesn't just tell us that, right? Um, she's quite right in saying that the speech that he just gave Right. Heaven in the Christmas time be praised for this. I say it on my knees. Right. That whole speech he's just made expresses 
it shows him glowing with good intentions. Um, but then the narrator, so what the narrator does is acknowledge that and then transition into helping us to hear more clearly his voice in our heads, describing his broken voice and mm-hmm. why it is that his broken voice will scarcely answer to his call. Um, and pointing to the almost, um, well, I don't know, almost harsh transition between he had just been sobbing violently, his face wet with tears in his previous conflict with the spirit, right? The spirit of Christmas yet to come. Um, And this sudden transition from violent weeping and streaming tears to glowing good intentions and joy that is now, um, that is now erupting. Dickens is kind of walking, uh, is walking us as readers through that process, which is a jarring process, but he brings us along with Scrooge there. And there's enough description there that I feel like is really relatable to anybody that's reading it. Like we've all had those moments where you thought you've really mucked something up and mm-hmm. then it proves to not be true or you've been forgiven. And just the relief washing over you in waves of, yes. you know, and that's what we're physically seeing him. Like it's, it's relief because, you know, the ghost of yet to come, he's not fulfilling that destiny at the moment. But there's so much more than just relief. Like, it's so much deeper than that because his redemption is so much bigger than relief, you know? So it's it takes a couple paragraphs to get that manifestation out. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm so- also having trouble not... Go- the, the version I've seen the most in the last three weeks is the Mickey's Christmas Carol <laughs> because I have a two-year-old. So we watch it nearly every day. Right. And that scene in the Mickey's Christmas Carol is right up there with Muppets as the most authentic adaptation mm-hmm. or faithful or whatever word you want to include. Um, and most of these words are in there and it's Scrooge McDuck. So yes. then you have all this other connotation attached to it of we know Scrooge McDuck and his focus on greed and money and things like that and having that sense of relief and then the visual depiction of it just plays so well. So, yes, I love that that ties so well to the text. And I'm going to continue playing Mickey's Christmas Carol in my head, (laughs) although I know we're I I have to say, I I think it's still the one I know best. Um, Easily uh, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, No, it's probably Muppets and then Mickey, but Mickey's a real close second. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and by the way, um, we can call off the panic. I have ascertained that, in fact, my son has seen the the Muppet Christmas Carol. So um, it has not been a childhood lost entirely. <laughs> but the fa- I mean, I'm, I'm not relieved by that because the fact that you didn't know. I know. It shows that, that it not, was not. It wasn't a family moment. Yeah. yeah. It's not as, as integral to his core fabric as it ought to be. I know. It's true. It's true. Um, uh, okay. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's interesting to look through this and thinking about like the literary techniques, how Dickens as a writer is bringing us along with it. Notice the breathlessness, how many exclamation points, mm. right? He's using through here and not even that. Um, the transition, the, the chapter, you know, stave five, of course, as he calls it, using the musical analogy. Um, yes. And the best bedpost was his own. 
it's almost a completion of this. Like, you know, we have to go back and look at how the last one ended, right? In his agony, mm. he caught the spectral hand. It sought to free itself, but he was strong in his entreaty and detained it. The spirit stronger yet repulsed him. Holding up his hands in a last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down to a bedpost. Yes, and the bedpost was his own, right? I mean, it's it's... There's no break at all. There's no right? break. Um, it you just hurtle forward from the one into the into the other. And I had forgotten that that the ghost dissolved into a bedpost. Like there's yeah. an actual visual transition there that I'd forgotten about until we reread it. And which the Muppets do, I think. Michael Caine comes in him like mm-hmm. hugging his uh, his bedpost. I think mm-hmm. or, you know like, like holding on as if he were is still an entreaty to the bedpost. And same with the 1951. They definitely wake up to the bedpost, but I don't think we have that transition of the ghost turning into a bedpost. Right, right. Not an actual it's a cut. Like, 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 you know, fade or resolve. There's no dissolve or, or fade yeah, yeah, or yeah. replacement. It's like a cut. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I feel like the Muppet one really matches well. Like his hat is in the same spot. Like it's yes. all the same frame. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, but you know, no, the, um, um, the, the, rapidity of this transition um, and the momentum of the whole thing, right? And, and again, how he brings us through, because it's it's a really interesting challenge as a writer to bring your readers through a scene in which the protagonist is having a really mentally jarring experience without making it too, like, unpleasantly jarring or difficult to follow, right, for the reader. Um or without laboring it, la- making it laborious, right? Um, belaboring it um, so that uh, you lose that sense of uh, sort of um, spontaneity. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, okay, let's, let's think, we come back to this too, but let's think about the, adaptations now. So we promised we would start with Spirited. Spirited, of course, is in some ways a complicated place to begin. I know. Because I'm kind of glad we're starting there because it's so different. It's so different. I mean, it's a lot It's yeah. a lot easier to compare this scene to the first two adaptations. Yeah. I mean, that's probably cons- why it's interesting to talk about this in terms of depiction. Yeah. Consistently we're not looking for a one for one. This is agreed. not taking a line and putting it on film. This is yes. taking a moment and figuring out how to retell that. And more, there's like throughout Spirited, right? It's like, it's like there's an extra dimension, right? I mean, it's like a three-dimensional object instead of a two-dimensional object as far as adaptations are concerned because it is self-conscious. We talked about ways in which adaptations can be as focused on adapting previous films as it is on adapting the book. Spirited is like an entire other level Next of that, level. right? It's, it is fundamentally not an adaptation of Dickens's book. It's an adaptation of the concept of Dickens's book as it is manifested in pop culture and in multiple adaptations, yep. right? It's like the social construct of A Christmas yes. Carol is the adaptation. <laughs> right, exactly. So there's... Um, and of course, this is the character of Ebenezer Scrooge in the in the spirited story is like the embodiment of that extra dimension, in a sense, right? Where you get like 
Um, so the final moment, right, the final moment of, uh, which is parallel, I think, to Scrooge's awakening, is that turning point moment followed by the realization, right? When, I'm forgetting, what's the name of the the other character, the other main character? The Ryan Reynolds one? Yes, the Ryan Reynolds character. Totally forgetting. Let's just name. call him Ryan because I can't remember either. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, when, when he comes in and... Milton. Milton. Clint. Milton. Clint. 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 How the heck yes. did I Clint. get Milton? Yeah, it is Clint. Clint. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Clint. Yes. Um, I just remembered because I, could ju- I just pictured... Um, Will Ferrell saying, just, Clint. All right, okay. Oh, I was hearing Octavia Spencer on the porch saying, Clint, you know I can't hear you, but I said Milton <laughs> in my head. So. Yes. Anyway, okay, so Clint, when, when Clint pushes, uh, you know, Scrooge out of the way, right, uh, of the bus, and then, like, that's the moment, right? That it's, it's the moment when he has changed and everything freezes and the dance party comes in, right? Marley and the rest of the crew come in and they do their celebratory... Mm-hmm it's happened thing. And then we get the celebratory dance and song number, right. To celebrate, to talk about change. Right. Um, so that already, the fact that there were two people involved is again, like emblematic of this extra dimension that's added throughout. Right. Because there's, there's change that's going on in Clint's character, but there's also change that's going on in Scrooge's character, right, uh, there as well. Um, and the entire system is like being sort of re, um, re-informed, re-examined. Recasted, re, yeah, yeah, reimagined. There's a lot, there's a lot of shift going on there. Right, right. But that's the moment where all of those things kind of, uh, kind of come together. And obviously the biggest contrast is you know the biggest contract and in a sense reversal from the from the traditional um, the moment the moment where Clint not only shows that he has actually changed but even embraces the idea that he has changed and that he really is different now is the moment of sacrifice when he mm-hmm. sacrifices his own life and the the immediate parallel to the waking up in the morning and discovering that it was all a vision and I can still change my life is actually the moment of his death, right? When his body, you know, when time resumes again, the bus hits him, he goes flying, and then his spirit wakes up from his body and his corpse is still lying there, right? Um, But then that is a really powerful moment when he says, well, that's a crap ending. And then a sister waltzes in and says, that's not the end, you know? So it's, it's, reframing that whole narrative too that you don't have to I mean we hope that he changes in the real world and that good you know imparts but we have another character taking on that space Scrooge gets to go back into that space and have a chance because he only lived for like a month right in his day before he died so he didn't get a lot of time to enact his own changes so here he is taking his human life and going back into the world as a Will Ferrell character and Ryan Reynolds thinking that's all I get that's a crappy ending no, he actually now gets to impart a ton of new change, but in the afterlife. Right. Because we have a whole other realm of understanding and a whole new world of, I don't know, impact, I guess, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that he can work within. So our two leads do get to con- continue to make all these big changes, but in very different ways. Yes. Yeah. So it's, um, 
which is a huge way to capitalize on a tiny moment. You know, if you have a tiny moment where somebody changes their heart, it's hard to capitalize on that. You know, yes. we just have to assume that Scrooge really did change in all of the other versions, right? It's a lot on faith right. that we're just saying, okay, I guess so. Right, that but, tomorrow and next week and next month, things are going to really be different. Yes. Mm -hmm. We yeah. are asked to accept that on faith, but mm -hmm. we don't see evidence yet. We can't. Whereas with this, we get a tiny, tiny moment. And yeah, we don't know, I suppose. But that tiny, tiny moment is so minimal that the impact of what they choose to do next is so much bigger. Right. Um, and, and seeing how Ryan Reynolds is so good at his job and how he's expanded and how he has a stable relationship and he has, you know, all these other things that start yes. to factor in. And they play so fast that the way that after scene is sketched out is such a beautiful way to kind of continue a story. Yes. And the way it's shot too, you know, he's he's zooming. I, I think the editing has got to be like three to five seconds per frame. It's so fast mm -hmm. that you can barely take it all in because he's so good at what he's doing. You're just carried along on that little wave. Yes. And then when it gets to Will Ferrell's house, it slows down a little bit because he's human and he's trying to build a fort and he's swearing a little bit because he's human. You know, there's these nice, nice yes. moments yes. of just painting a really lovely picture of these two individuals that still get to interact and work well together. But yeah, it, it plays out really well. And I like that it kind of slows down to show Will Ferrell shifting into that space mm -hmm. too. Yeah. I mean, I think that I would say one of the things, one of the ways in which these, that whole, you know, the whole ending sequence there, um, in spirited plays off of what's happening in the book is that it's it feels like the film rejects might be too strong a verb but at least calls into question problematizes as we academics would say um the this the sort of conversion moment that scrooge is having that dickens describes right Instead of giving the main character that moment where they wake up and say, I am a flutter and glowing with good intentions. I am now going to, from now forward. I shall be different for the rest of my life. The film seems to actively resist that mm -hmm. entire concept. Right. Mm -hmm. And so both in, 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 in multiple directions, we can see that. Right. Even the moment when he pushes uh, when he pushes Will Ferrell out from in front of the bus, right? And the thing freezes. And there's that, like, Will points at him like it's a gotcha moment of some kind, where he's like, oh, you you know, you're like, you just, like, what you did just proved that you, you didn't think you changed, but you totally changed. And he resists it for a moment. He's like, no, yeah. no, I didn't change. You know, I, I didn't. He's like, yes, you did, right? So, but again, the point is, it's he's not having a moment of resolution, He's not having a moment where he's saying, like, I'm going to change my life from here on out. What he's pointing to is you have changed already. Like, at some point along the way, you did change. It was and, a reaction. Yeah. yeah. And, and now, everything preceding that, too, I thought was really interesting because it wasn't about Clint, Ryan Reynolds' character. Right. It was about Will Ferrell. Yes. All of that conversation was about you are a good person. See, yes. So there was reassuring Will Ferrell. And then in that process, we get Ryan Reynolds' moment. Of, of change. Yes. And of course, that's the, again, it's one of the ways in which, as I say, it's like it adds a variable or the way that it kind of takes and in some ways kind of reverses the situation. Um, the whole process of 
encouraging someone that they're not a horrible person is one of the things that makes him into a less horrible person, right? Um, Just as, of course, Will Ferrell, who is literally the ghost of Christmas present, right, is the one who has to, like, be sort of re-changed and re-convinced in its way, right? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, So it, 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 it makes the whole process more kind of complex and more dynamic and less of a, you know, from this moment forward, I shall be. Um... Uh, in that way. But of course, it, I, I was also going to say, as you mentioned, seeing <laughs> seeing the Will Ferrell character swearing at his children right in that last scene. And, you know, and he says, like, I'm sorry, he still comes out sometimes like I can. Yeah. You know, OK, um, shows OK. This is not a you know, this is not a, a you know, the light bulb is turned on and shall never go off again. Everything is now made new and um, and, and 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 will never go backwards. Nor um, the goodness is perfection. Yeah. I, I like that they allow that little space too. Like you can still have a changed heart and be a good person and swear from time to time and get mad at a kit or yes. a playground. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah, so there does seem to me to be a significant resistance to um, the kind of the rough simplicity of the overall Christmas Carol paradigm, right? Which is, of course, interesting. Then thinking back to what we were observing about the opening of the film of the film last time, right? Last time we see they run the scenario, right? We see the scenario, right? We see the tail end of the scenario, right? And we see a person being changed, right? Mm-hmm. We see a person, be, you know, and in that transformation, and then all of the, you know literal and figurative high-fiving that happens afterwards, right? When the when the work is done and this, you know, yet another person has been changed for the better. Um, uh, so we, we, we begin with the enactment of that sort of comparatively simplistic paradigm and then it ends by sort of complicating it and questioning it um, uh, there, uh, there at the end. Um, now... I think about the Muppets. One more thing I'm pointing oh, out there. Thing, yeah. Nothing major, but I also loved the dance number. First of all, there's a whole dance number that we get to celebrate a change. Like that's just a lovely moment of like, yep, let's lean into that stereotype of we're changed. We're going to make a song about it, which is the same thing they did in the opening of like, oh yeah, the afterlife's a musical. Like, yep, just enjoy that. Right. Um, but the frozen moment in time, I loved how long they carried that out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they made a purpose choice to make it snowing and all the snow froze and they're doing all of this movement, all of this space, all of these swooping camera angles and everything else my, in a frozen space. My favorite thing is the frozen expression of horror in the bus driver's face. In the bus driver? <laughs> they keep coming back to him as he's going through. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. man, you know somebody's going to screenshot you and me just doing that. <laughs> out of it. Uh, yeah, no, I love that. It's, it's such a great way to just kind of be like, okay, a lot is happening in this tiny moment you know like it is so short it is so brief and there's something quite powerful in that because you can't help but like get caught up in the music and all the joy and all the change and start to you know internalize and personalize and all this other stuff that you just get carried away in the there's so much i can do and well and and you're right that's 
that's also the way in which, although, as I say, I do think the film moves away from the more simplistic paradigm and is wanting to complicate it and show, you know, realistic uh, concerns, as Ms. Manrique says, you know, um, realistic earthly regressions, you know, on the resolutions and the good intentions. But it also, in that moment, in that frozen moment, there is still the celebration of the, like, like the paradigm is still there. Right. In that mm-hmm. moment, we're celebrating change. Right. That he's he's he, he does. The Clint character does have his Scrooge's morning after moment in that almost infinitely protracted moment right before the bus hits him. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, so. So, yeah, we do. We do. Uh, we do see that. But um, um, but yeah, then it's placed within that that sort of larger context. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a very cool moment and neat way to tell that bit of a story. It is. It is. It is. Okay. Okay. Muppets. Let's talk about the Muppet version. So the Muppet version is by far, of the three, by far closest to the text. Um, Which... I thought was uh, uh, was was really interesting. Um, we get the sort of dissolve into the uh, the bedpost, right? And it, it really is almost a match edit with his hat dark in the graveyard mm-hmm. to the light of daybreak on his yes. hat in the same space. Yes, yes. Um, his running around the room. Um, he delivers many of the lines, light as a feather, Mary is a schoolboy, right? You know, he, we, we, and uh, seems frenetic and you could see how stockings would get made party to. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Though we don't, we don't see any of that, nor do we see him. So he, he he's running around and he's, he's giddy and he's excited and he's, um, Okay, one moment that really stuck out to me, and it stuck out to me in part because I had watched the 1951 one first, <laughs> but um, uh, was the moment when Michael Caine looks in the mirror, right? And he like, st- oh, does the Ooh. like he's gonna start doing something with his hair, and then he kind of jerks back, and he's like, Ugh, whatever, mm-hmm. and he just leaves it behind, right? Um, that was a really interesting moment because it was mm-hmm. like he looks at himself in the mirror. It's almost like a moment of realization. Like, I feel like a completely different person. Oh, wait, but I don't look like a completely different person. Like, I'm still as old and ugly as I was before, you know, when I went to bed. It, it was like the impression that it gave me. Oh, I don't see, know. I didn't feel that. No? I, I guess I felt that moment was kind of like a routine, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, this is what he always does is look in the mirror, and then he realizes partway through the glance, like, oh, my God, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, and, yeah. And, and scoots out. Yeah. You know, because he kind of looks like he wants to zhuzh, and then he's like, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> doesn't matter. Right. Not not bother. Yeah, and I wasn't sure whether he normally did. I, didn't, I you know, I don't know. If anything, surely he would just growl at himself. Right. I, I can't imagine Scrooge, like, slicking right. his hair back and caring <laughs> right. about it much. I don't think he spends a whole lot of time in front of the mirror, usually, right? No, I but, don't. I guess I, I guess he wouldn't care necessarily beforehand either. But it's a different kind of doesn't care. It's more of a, it doesn't matter. It doesn't as matter as opposed to right. I don't care what you think. Right. Rather than this is not important. Yes. Yes. Um, I, the reason the reason it stepped out to me is that like sort of grunt 
that he does, right? Mm. Um, and and it struck out to me because it was the one. It wasn't exactly a sour note, but it was it was like off from like it was the only moment in which he. It was one of the only deviations from mm-hmm. everything else was like beautiful, happy, delighted expression. And I'm running around and I'm speaking. The, right. And then he moves on. Right. Um, and that's that was it was the it was the um, I don't know what the inequality of that, the, the unevenness of that, that sort of momentary interruption of his mood in that way that really struck me. I guess, as I say, I'm not sure what to do with it, but I, I, that's a, a nice moment to clock into though. Cause I mean, and even Michael King was saying he wanted to deliver everything like a Shakespearean actor, like every other moment of that scene is really strong. So to have this kind of, again, really human reaction right. of looking at yourself in the mirror and go, oh, like, oh, it, it feels improvised. Whereas everything else does not feel improvised. Right. Right. Especially since everything else he's going through this, the, the, you know, not the book exactly like a script. He doesn't say everything. Um, but, um, but, but yes, um, much of what, um, you know, both, I mean, he goes down onto his knees and says that I will live in the past, present and future. Um, uh, calling out to Marley, well, to both of the Marleys in the in the Muppet version, um, the I'm light as a feather, happy as an angel speech. Like he he's doing so. Yeah, it's he, he's following the script almost everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, almost literally. Yeah, um, and his his throwing open the sash of the windows is my absolute favorite in any adaptation because one, it brings our narrators back in because they're yes. asking, "Do you think we're safe sitting on this window? What could possibly go wrong? He's a changed man. He's full of goodness." And they get launched off the windowsill. Um, but that moment, too, when he leans out the window and, and Rizzo and Gonzo land in the snow next to the little bunny rabbit, mm-hmm. who's the, the wee boy the who's going to go yeah. be sent to, to pick up the, the turkey. I, I just love that moment. And I would reenact that a thousand times if I could. You boy, what day is it? Today is Christmas. It's right from the literature. It's directly from the text. And yet mm-hmm. it's, it's this lovely little departure because we've got Gonzo and Rizzo. But it doesn't feel weird. It fits right in because everything else is done so well, I think, that the right vibe is there. And we do get our narrators back in, which is a nice way to bring them in. Yes. And he interacts with them. Um, when mm-hmm. he comes out of the house, he taps them both on the head, Gonzo and Rizzo, <laughs> uh, and says Merry Christmas to them as they go by. Um, uh yeah, yeah. Um, I want to think more about Gonzo and Rizzo being thrown off the, the, uh, man, the not the mantelpiece, the windowsill. Windowsill. Um, what is the effect of reasserting? Because the way in which the narr- the narrator voice, Gonzo's narrator voice, is reasserted there. It's a it's an interesting choice because they choose not. It could have been much more intrusive, right? They do the transition. I mean, he is almost done with his scene, right? It really is. Gonzo and Rizzo sitting on the the windowsill outside has nothing to do with his waking up in the bedroom in the morning scene. It's the transition to the conversation with the boy in the street scene, right? Um, so we we get a return of the narrator's voice, but that whole scene, in which, in some ways, one might have been tempted to use the narrator's voice, 
right, to tell us about some of the things that he is thinking and feeling, right? Um, uh, they avoid that. We don't get the narrator voice until this central conversion scene is over, you know, this response scene is over. I feel like that was probably quite purposeful because when they leave in the Ghost of Future Yet to Come scene, they say, oh, this is too scary for me. We're out of here. Like, they remove themselves, and right. Scrooge becomes the main element of the story as he ought to be. So they're not important anymore. The story does not rely on them. It's Scrooge's story. So for them to come back in, we don't really need them anymore. They're just a nice little bookend. And it does kind of feel like just pure comic relief at that point. But the fact that they're on the windowsill, they're not inside, there is this kind of separation of the main story is Scrooge now. They're just on the periphery. Has he ever interacted with them before? Not directly in the way he taps him on the head, but the, I'm thinking the way he knocks him off the windowsill. I know there have been mishaps and stuff with Rizzo, especially throughout the film, but has Scrooge himself, as I recall, it's mostly like them going up to look at him from a ledge and falling off or something like mm -hmm. that, or some other thing intervening. Um, I can't think of it. I mean, they hitch a ride on him to the past, but that might be on the ghost, not to him. I can't remember. Right. But yeah, as far as even there, though, they would still be attaching themselves to him as opposed to him doing something to them, which yeah. he very much does. And what he does is he sweeps them right out of the picture. Right. Mm. Um, because, yes, I had um, I had not been thinking about I had been forgetting about that moment where they excuse themselves. Mm hmm because they're freaked out by the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Um, there is, because it's not just, I mean, yes, it's the kind of physical comedy you expect from the Muppets. That is them being thrown off the windowsill and landing in the snow. Um, but it's more than just that. Like they, in this gesture, which is such a, When he finishes his purely internal shift, mm -hmm. the opening of the window and him calling out the window to the boy, that's like symbolically speaking, that's a really important moment in that whole sequence. When the change, which we can see and hear from what he's doing and how he's acting and what he's saying in the privacy of his own bedroom, right? And when that becomes public. Right. When he opens his windows and leans his head out, right, engaging himself with the community, right, opening, opening the, the, the windows of this inner, you know, sanctuary, um, connecting with a waif on the street, right, with somebody whom he would certainly have never paid any attention to mm -hmm. and certainly not been kind to before. And, and so, like, the actions that he's performing to purchase the turkey for the Cratchits, the kindness with which he interacts with the boy, like, all of those things are um, the sort of outward playing out of what the window opening itself kind of symbolizes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Knocking himself back into the world. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Opening, he's like, he's opening his heart, right, to the world. Mm -hmm. is, is like almost literally what we see happening there. So, again, it feels important that our narrators go away, right? They're like, we don't want any part of this part of the story. This is a really scary part. Now they come back and they're like, and we're back, right? Um, on the windowsill, 
but there's they don't even do any like they haven't done Gonzo does not do any narrative of this critical mm-hmm. moment like the most important you know the climax of the entire story Gonzo wasn't there for it right he wasn't no, mediating they're just celebrating that along with us they're yeah. just watching the show too yeah they're just, yeah they're purely spectating and then right when Gonzo sounds like he's about to start narrating again whoosh the the windows mm-hmm. open and they get swept away again and now they're just like extras Again, they're just one of the several people that he says Merry Christmas to when he comes out the door. And that's the next thing that we see. So it's it's an interesting kind of... Um, it is almost like the, the narrative, that, that narrator voice that is mediated to us through Gonzo um, mm-hmm. becomes kind of pushed to the side, right? Um, I'm trying to think about the final moments. They're singing When Love is Gone at the Table... But I think as the credits start to roll, we get Rizzo and Gonzo talking over the credits. Am I making that up? At the end? And yeah, at the very, very end. Oh, I, don't I think they I do get the last word, but it's still okay. in the crowd. It's it's not narrative. Right, right. Yeah, they're, they're not putting a Dickensian the end on the end of it. They're like screaming about food or something. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, so framing in some sense, but not really narrating in the same mm-hmm. way. Um. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, sorry, Chloe, who is with us on YouTube. Um, Chloe, it's funny because you've mentioned two of the things that we actually did talk about last year, but we didn't we didn't talk about them this year. That is, she, she was like, did you talk about the oh, Matt Dr. Smith? And did you talk about the, the Black Adder? And like, we actually talked about both of those last year in our Christmas Carol special when we did six, well, seven, counting six Blackadder, uh, uh, different adaptations. Though we didn't happen to choose either one of those, but yes, both brilliant adaptations uh, of this story. Um, yeah, Doctor Who ones, which, by the way, we've got new Doctor Who episodes we might have to talk about, so that's <laughs> yes. that's a future Other Minds and Ants. It's not an adaptation, is it? But it makes me really happy to yeah, talk about Yeah, no, actually, Who it's a really interesting... Um, you know, it's it's... Doctor Who at this point has almost become like uh, it has become its own text that is being oh, adapted. Hundred percent. You know, I mean, like there's especially having this. Re- I mean, like I'm I'm so fuzzy on the 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 details because I haven't rewatched the David Tennant stuff in a really long time. But this new episode, I only watched the first one so far. The way he's playing into the lore that he created. 15 years ago and assuming that we're all going to remember these little inside jokes and these things that went viral and completely self-referential as a as an individual text it's so fun (laughs) yes and it is like each new manifestation of the you know each new um doctor is like an adaptation of the one before right in a sense so Mm -hmm, it is it is it is a really complex sort of thing Someday, I said, Julie. I was wondering, Julie Dick was here and, and enthusiastic about it. I was, I'm, uh, I, I, I didn't know if you were here, Julie. I figured you would be enthusiastic about that suggestion. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, the anyway. Uh, back to back to the Muppets. Okay, so with the Muppets, then, um, so that. Um, Sweeping aside of the narrative, we don't need the narrative anymore. It's such an interesting move because now it suggests. I'm thinking about the way, just as I was thinking about the way in which Dickens, the writer, and Dickens, the narrator, 
are sort of mediating between the character of Scrooge and us, right? Helping us to to perceive Scrooge's experience and the kind of reactions that we are being invited to have to Scrooge's experience, right? The ways in which mm-hmm. um, we're invited to connect with that, right? Um, I think that we can see in The Muppet Christmas Carol them doing some really interesting things there. It's now... Um, the the kind of removal of that narrative, the, the 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 deliberate, purposeful, even playfully violent removal of the narrative figures there, um, seems to me to really speak to the kind of connection that the film expects us to make with Scrooge. Think of the distance that we had from Scrooge when he walks in, in the opening that mm-hmm. we talked about last week, right? You've got the whole city singing the song about him, and, you know, we st- we're, we emphatically... Remember that, that the, the thing with the cue, right? Where Gonzo Dickens is like, when he, he comes, right now, and he comes yeah. around the corner, right? Like, he's on, he's, he's, mm-hmm. he's you know, just performing the cues, right? And so we're very distant from him and we're invited to look at him. And it's all Dutch angles. It's all very yes. unnerving. Very unnerving, it's very disturbing. Yeah. Exactly. And so we're encouraged to look at him as this almost monstrous figure. Um, mm-hmm. and, and now in the end, when he is opening out the window straight towards us and we're seeing him straight on and the narrator's flying off, um, there's now this deep connection that's being this direct link that's being established between us and Scrooge which has been growing but uh, but I, I mean they, they seem to be paralleling that link to this moment of conversion in Scrooge and I think that that's really that's, that's a mm. really fascinating thing for them to have done there's also a nice moment where the narrators are tied back in where they like you said, they just become part of the extras, but it's not like they get knocked off the windowsill and we don't see them again. They get knocked off the windowsill into the snow next to the rabbit, right. and they interrupt the rabbit delivering his line. They right. bump into him and then scurry across the frame. So yes. it's not like he fell and got out of the way. He fell and got out of the way. You know, <laughs> he went all the way across the front of our character. So he's yeah. still kind of pushing himself into our scene. But I like that because it really ties the two together. It's not a separation. It's a bringing together of these two things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, okay. And so now, but then we get towards what I thought was the most significant alteration that they made from the text because it's very close to the text they're following the script in so many ways but there's one major thing that they changed that jumped out to me so much and it's in the interaction um with um uh with uh uh honeydew and beaker um Mm -hmm. the two charity collector people right so scrooge comes out fully and nicely dressed i would add right nothing Nothing crazy or disordered. No stockings around his neck. In his dress or appearance. Exactly. He's, and he, although he has changed significantly, he doesn't look crazy. This is important because, like, the Mickey's Christmas Carol leans into the crazy. Like, he goes out with, like, his pajamas on and his, mm-hmm. you know, he's all he's all disordered and messed up, right? Um, the, um, so... He comes out and he looks fine, except he's except he's acting differently. And he comes over, and they're afraid of him, right? You've got Beaker like hunched down in terror behind Honeydew, and he comes over, um, 
And then he, you know, whispers the amount of money he's going to give. He makes this very, very large donation. And now comes the, the big thing that really stood out to me as this huge, huge change. When Beaker gives his scarf to Ooh. Scrooge, right? Um, Honeydew says, if only there were something that we could do to thank you for your gift. And Beaker gives him his red scarf. And of course, Scrooge is wearing all black, right? Mm-hmm. Like he always does. That's all he owns, right? This is all, all, all black clothes. And Beaker gives him the scarf, the, red, the bright red scarf, and he takes the scarf and he's visibly touched, right? A present for me, right? He's, he's um, you know, the Michael Caine makes it fairly clear, like Scrooge never receives gifts. Like yeah. doesn't this he can barely even process this, right? And so he takes the tiny little scarf, which is way too small for him, and puts it around his neck, right? And um and wears this bright splash of red. It's now the most visible thing on his entire ensemble, of course, and completely transforms his look, right? Now that he has this bright red thing around his neck. Um but that element of Scrooge understanding the like the wonder of receive like the the how marvelous is it to receive a gift right mm. that's not in the text we get nothing mm. like that in the text that's a completely new um, dimension that they added to the story they were following the script almost exactly right in, in almost every way but that one thing that was the biggest departure from the from the the the, the text's narrative that they introduced mm-hmm. and i found it to be a dramatic um transformation of how i was being invited to look at scrooge there's a kind of vulner personal vulnerability that we see in scrooge there that we don't see in the book in the same way that's exactly what i was going to say like you know it, it makes me feel a bit emotional when you think about like people caring about you you know, when you when you have friends that reach out to you in a tough time or you have family members that give you a hug when you're having a bad day, mm-hmm. that's when you start to feel really touched and really emotional. And he's never had that. And yes. in that moment is when you see it. So tapping into that very raw human emotion and allowing us to see that, the vulnerable is the right word. That's really powerful. Yeah, yeah. And I one of the things that it seems to me to... Um, uh, one of the things that it, it seems to me if the um, if there's a, a sort of a potential weakness in the book, right, it is that the giving away of things that Scrooge does do is being rich and being a patron to others is something that can really boost your ego. Mm. Right? I mean, that's a thing. Right? Yes, it shows that he's changed his attitude towards his money in that he's willing to not only buy the prize turkey, you know, in the next window and give it as a generous gift to Bob Cratchit, um, but that he's also willing to tip the boy so generously and treat him so nicely, right? I'm not saying that he hasn't really changed, but again, like, one of the things you talked about in the book, being asked to take on faith, that he's really changed and he's really going to stay changed, right? Um, And this, to me, is one of those elements 
right? Um, is he... But there are two ways in which the Muppet film addresses this, right? One is the gift that he receives and the way that he receives that to show that he really, his heart has changed towards people in these other ways. Like he really does, he sees and feels things differently now than he did before. Um, he was all about power before. He's all about control. Mm. And again, you can be all about power and about control and also give stuff away to people. Yeah. That can be a mechanism for exerting a power, power control. And yeah. control. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm not saying that book Scrooge is doing that, but it's, 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 you know, I felt that the, the Muppet film went a step further in showing the genuineness of that change in him. The other thing is that mm -hmm. he whispers the amount of money to the, um, yeah. to, to Honeydew. Right. Like, I'm, I don't want to get credit. I'm not trying to make everybody around think I'm awesome. If I came out and shouted, yes, I'm going to give 10,000 yeah. pounds, which in, you know, that day. He's not doing it for show. He's not, not doing, doing it for show. the tax break. He's exactly. doing it because that's what he wants to do to be yeah. a good person. Yeah. So those two things that they did, I thought were really interesting in sort of trying to show how 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 genuine, mm -hmm. you know, that was. And those are additions that you feel like make sense. You know, it, it doesn't have to be for a modern audience or anything like that. It's just more ways to show a changed heart. So mm -hmm. how else can you do it? And those are two really lovely ways that fit in. You could believe that they were in the text from Dickens. They don't feel right. like a massive departure. No, no, but not at all. They're not. Not so. at all. But it does really, it does really make something explicit that isn't. I mean, mm -hmm. not, I mean it's not... There are other ways in which we can see Scrooge's change, but in that moment, like in this in this moment, we see more of it, I think, in the book um, with the Cratchits later on. But um, but here, um, and I like the show. Don't tell. I like that we mm -hmm. didn't have to have the narrator telling us that he's changed. We get to see these little moments that are very human. Yes, yes, and I think that that's really the moment with the scarf in the Muppet film is the one in which it seems to me we're. Like, that's the really convincing moment, right? That's mm -hmm. the, he really has changed. He's, this is not just a, you know, like a temporary, you know, act that he's putting on or something. He's just being good today. No. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The 1951 film. The 1951 film um, leans really heavily into the disorder, mm -hmm. right? Very um, much chaos. Chaos, like, mm -hmm. like mad scientist chaos. Yes, like, yeah. uh, it, it's like Scrooge has a psychotic break, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, it leans so heavily into, you know, I am light as a feather, happy as an angel, merry as a schoolboy, giddy as a drunken man. Now, he delivers the line, um, but he's more than giddy, right? I mean, he's completely frantic. Um, but then more than that, the thing which is... So, again, he acts like a crazy person and is meant to be seen as a crazy person. And we know he's meant to be seen as a crazy person because the film goes out of its way to give us an extra person who is a spectator of this, which none of the others that we've looked at, well, okay, in spirited, but it's just a different paradigm. Um, 
the Muppet adaptation just gave us him alone in his bedroom in the morning, right? The 19th, and, and the book has him alone in his bedroom. Um, and he doesn't interact with another human being until he opens the window and talks to the boy. Um, but, um, but, uh, the, um, the edition in 1951, in the 1951 film, of the maidservant yep. who comes in. I think, I don't know, of all of these scenes that we're looking at, I think that's the most disastrous adaptation choice of all of them. It's just... It should do anything it's for the awful, scene. It's awful, but it yeah. makes it much more horrible. Like, when you have that kind of a situation, right, where there's like the main person experiencing something and there's another character whose only job is to look on and re and react right mm -hmm. that person inevitably provides us some kinds of cues right right some context yeah. some awareness right and i mean and if we either we respond either we like we're supposed to respond the way that that person is responding and they're prompting us how we're supposed to respond or if we don't if we have a different response it's, it may sometimes draw our attention to how we view things very differently from um uh from everybody else but she s responds to scrooge's um to scrooge's change as if he is just, he has simply gone insane. She's yeah. terrified, including yeah. when like, he's like, I must stand on my head. And then he flashes her because he's standing on his head in his like nightgown, which he's presumably yeah. not wearing anything under. Right. And so he, he goes and stands on his head on the chair and flashes her. And she immediately responds. She throws her apron over her head and goes running, screaming out the room. Yeah. And it's really uncomfortable. And then he chases after her, which gets way more uncomfortable as Very he's like weird. trying to reassure her. And he like tackles her on the stairs and is physically holding her down. And I'm like, please make this scene end. Like, I can't even it, handle it, it. It feels like there was a producer in the back going, we got to make this crazy. Go. You know, but it was yeah. 1951. Like, it, it wasn't, yeah, it, was, it wasn't really the vibe. But it's so counter to the change that we're supposed to see in him, that it's so jarring. It just kind of negates all of the work that was done leading up to that point, because instead he just looks crazy as opposed yes. to changed. And they try to introduce into his dialogue to her that he's going to be generous to her, right? Mm -hmm. That he's going to change and not, um, you know, be stingy and, and everything. But, but, I mean, she has a hard time believing it or receiving it. Um, and, and honestly, again, he's, he's looked so insane that you almost have to think like, are any I of his good deeds going to stick because he's mm -hmm. going to get hauled off, you know, to the asylum and, you know, maybe they're going to like deem he wasn't in his right mind <laughs> when he did all these generous things. Right. Right. I mean, if you're going to introduce another character, it should be to solidify the change. Like we have all those moments with spirited, like it's a hot second, but we can see right. how much there is a change. Whereas with this, no, none of that worked because instead I don't believe anything. This all just seems mad. Yes, it's it was such a peculiar thing. I mean, like I, the idea of like 
he is so transformed that people don't even recognize him, right? That, like, there needs to be... I mean, it's almost like they're so intent on showing a kind of before and after of the extremely reserved and, um, you know, terse and gruff and business-like Mr. Scrooge from the beginning of the film um, that they just want to go extravagantly over the top in the other direction. Um, And although there is in the text the business with the extravagance with his clothes and strangling himself with his socks, right? Like that there is a sense of disorder there. Of disruption. I mean we talked there about is, that. But it's it, there. But it but... feels but it feels frenetic or it feels like I can't tie my shoelaces because I'm so excited as opposed to I've gone crazy. I've gone crazy and then mm-hmm. like a, 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 a risk to myself and others. Right. I mean yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Definitely yeah. causing harm by doing a handstand with no pants on. Right, right. Doing psychological harm that way and yeah. possibly physical harm on the stairs, as, as which is, yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's very uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I find it by far the least pleasant um, of all of the... Um, and the most the jarring. It. I mean. Yeah. It's it's accurate in a lot of the wording, sure. So you can call that faithful in one respect, but it just doesn't follow the vibe of the rest of it. So, that departure, like like we've said before, departures are absolutely fine. You have the right to make a departure from text to film, but there's no reason for this departure. We don't yes. understand this departure. It doesn't mesh with the character that we've seen before. It certainly doesn't mesh with the character that we know from the text. So I don't really know what the thought process was behind this one. It's actually an interesting illustration of how it can, like the script can be close to the original and yet depart very (laughs) radically, right? And it really does not, I mean, I, I don't, it's hard to say exactly what effect they were hoping for there. I mean, we can't see into their heads, but, um, but the effect that it creates does seem to me to be very counter to, certainly far outside the spirit of mm-hmm. what Dickens is describing here in this moment. I mean, in, in this way, I think that um, I think that Spirited captures it very much more, even though oh, definitely they're, of course, doing things completely differently. And even as I suggested, I think that they're they're kind of questioning the entire paradigm that the book establishes here in this moment. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're sort of putting pressure on that and calling that into question in various ways. But even through that, I feel like they're being a sort of truer to the spirit of this scene than, um, uh, than the 1951 film ended up being. Um, and it's, yeah, yeah, that was hard. Um, we don't have much time left, but a really great question. I wanted to come back to Gregory was asking, um, what about the change of having him spend Christmas with the Cratchits instead of with his nephew? Really, Mm. really good question because that's a trend in most modern films, Mm -hmm. right? Most of the modern films downplay the nephew and play up Bob Cratchit. Um, and well, I'm trying to remember the nephew scene from the 51. I really like the nephew scene from the Muppets because you do have that moment of 
hug, kiss, shock, awe, disbelief, and go. Yes. So, you know, there is this kind of moment of, I can tell something has changed, but it, it isn't jarring like the 1951 one. Yes. It's more of refreshing and disbelief in yes. a really lovely way because it was so sincere. And yeah, I really like the look on Fred's face in that scene. Yes. Yeah, I was... Um... Yeah, I'm tr- sorry. I, I wasn't reviewing that scene, so I don't have it fresh in my head to mm-hmm. uh, to do de- a detailed recollection of. I do think that the choice to um, the overall tendency of modern adaptations to spotlight the Cratchits and downplay the nephew. Um, It has, an, it has an important effect, right? I mean, the primary effect that it has is to lay more stress on the positive fruit of Scrooge's change being generosity to the poor in general and generosity to his poor employee, like to his, to his inferiors, right? As opposed to... Uh, Valuing of family connections, right? That he had separated himself from his family in the way that he had, and the way in which Christmas is emphasized. I mean, as as uh, uh, as his nephew emphasizes so much when coming to invite him to dinner again, right? As he does every year, despite the fact that Scrooge refuses every year, right? Um, the the scene at the beginning with the nephew's invitation is very much emphasizing Christmas is about reconnecting with family. This is a this is part of the essence of what it of what Christmas means is this um, this connection with family, and that in distancing himself from that, in separating himself from that, Scrooge is violating something almost you know, at least as deep as his lack of mercy to the poor and of his mm-hmm. and of, of of his unkindness and cruelty towards his employee his unfeelingness towards his employee um, and so the the shift away from him spending Christmas dinner with his nephew and towards him spending Christmas dinner with the Cratchits um, it really does seem to be a, a general um, I don't know what like devaluing seems like a maybe a too strong word but um, certainly less of a focus on that the significance of family in that way which I think the, the book is very much suggesting I think it would be harder to show change in the family relationship in this instance. So I don't know I I don't know how I feel about commenting on the role of family or the depiction of family in modern adaptations because that seems like a much bigger topic than I have brain space to consider. But in terms of just seeing someone's change in a space, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier I think to depict someone's change with someone less fortunate mm-hmm. than it is with somebody on the same financial level it 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 feels simpler in a nice way <laughs> to just kind of show also we have bob cratchit is much more in his day-to-day 
So right. the kindness and the openness that he's able to give to the Cratchit family shows kind of a bigger connection to his everyday existence. Right. And again, I'm thinking of Mickey, making him a partner, you know, yes. like really inviting him into the practice. And I'm not just paying your mortgage. I'm making you a partner and bringing yes. you into this business fully. Like that's a real commitment because that's not just donating a lump of money and going on about your day. That's changing everything. That's changing yes. how you work. That's changing how you show up. That's changing the name on the sign. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That feels like a, a bigger, easier win for a filmmaker trying to tell a story of how to show change than it would take a little bit longer with Fred to kind of illustrate that. Right. So basically you're suggesting, I'm thinking back to your observation before about faith, right? That we have to kind of take on faith that his change is permanent. And so it's a way of... Um, kind of bridging that gap a little bit to show potentially like, yeah, yeah yeah i could see that i mean i could see i could see that being a reason why you would say that and we've had more time with the cratchits like we relate more to the cratchits as an audience member than i relate to fred because i'm not in that upper echelon of financial victorian right. you know echelon <laughs> right. Right. i do relate more to the bob cratchits so maybe that makes more sense too to lean into that relationship yeah that's interesting too um, and even just showing up to a party where, like, bunches of other well-to-do people will be doesn't seem like as clear and emphatic a testimony to a changed character as... Or speaking of an impact, like, when you think about the Muppet one or, or the text, you know, they're playing the game making fun of Scrooge. That's mm -hmm. not a group of people that are kind in their heart 100%. It's not the nicest thing to do. I know it's just a game and they're not evil people, but it's not showing the Cratchits is a much more pure family centered. Yes. That is a stronger depiction of what an idealized family is yes. than I think Fred is. Yes. So yeah. I don't know if it's a devalue family. It's probably a heightening of family if you look at it through that lens. Yes. Um, well, just again, as usual, it's the relationships are too complicated to talk about this easily. But Drowsnake is pointing out how the relationship to the mm. nephew or niece in this case is uh, in spirited, spirited is so integral to the plot. Um, yeah. And right. I mean, yes, the um, the nephew parallel character there is a nephew parallel character whom the scrooge character you know the scrooge parallel character who's clint right is neglecting and then there's also the bob cratchit character right the secretary whom he's you know ex exploiting and mistreating and, and everything right um but of course what they do with both of those characters is so is so different but i do agree draw snake that it is interesting that mm -hmm. in in the through the choices, through the, the changes that they make to the whole scenario with the niece character um, in, uh, in Spirited, they do place that relationship closer to the center of the story than I think it is in any other adaptation, um, you know, in like a hundred years. I think that that, that that is an interesting sort of side effect of the particular, you know, kinds of choices they made about that. I think that's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, Jonathan, I see you talking about 
sort of the potential interplay on, on YouTube there, the potential interplay between Scrooge McDuck and Ebenezer Scrooge, right, um, in the Mickey's Christmas Carol. And, of course, the same is true in The Muppets as well. And I, I will admit that it is a really delightful kind of added dimension to both of those adaptations, right, where both of those adaptations are kind of taking... There's a sort of additional language that they use, right, in which Muppets they choose to play what roles in the story. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And the clear associations they want us to make in many places, right, with the the character, you know, between the Muppet who's playing that character and that character in the story. Um, And I do think that that's true. Um, And, you know... Maggie, thinking back to what you were just saying about identification with the Cratchits, the fact that Mickey Mouse plays Bob Cratchit, there you go. Everybody's beloved, you know? Like Bob Cratchit, as soon as you see in the opening sequence that Bob Cratchit is played by Mickey Mouse, like Bob Cratchit becomes the main character of the story, functionally, right? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, At least we're invited to think of him in that sort of protagonist role. And I would Um, say the same with Muppets, you know, having Kermit do that role, and Kermit is... The icon that everybody has for the Muppet Show and things like that—they're putting them as the central. Yes. Yeah. Alignment. Exactly. Exactly. So in both of those, it's like this whole different set, this whole special set of cues, right? That the that the filmmakers mm-hmm. have in both cases that they can supply. Um, yeah, that's um, that's really um, that's really interesting. And giving us Piggy, too. Like, you know, the strongest relationship in that film is Kermit and Piggy, which mm-hmm. is the strongest relationship in The Muppets is Kermit and Piggy. So right. if you're putting that in, I feel stronger about that than I do about the two random humans I don't know playing mm-hmm. Fred and his wife. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that is um, it is it is a really interesting level that gets added mm. to it. Um, and, yeah, it would be fun to do, you know. If we were doing a, a an analysis just of um, one or other of those, it would be fun to dig into that a little bit more um, in seeing the next ways. Christmas. We, next, next Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> next Christmas. Next Christmas. We'll come up with something else for these months. Actually, like, there's so many other Christmas carols. I feel like we should just every year, we'll keep doing Christmas carol. We'll just keep <laughs> rotating which ones. Like, I was just saying to Corey, I just discovered Rod Serling wrote a Christmas carol adaptation that I have yet to watch in 1964 or something, um, trying to push for world peace. So, okay, sure. Yes. Sounds good. In 1964, <laughs> world peace Christmas carol. Okay. Yeah. Let's sure. see. Let's see what that looks like, right? What kind of choices you make uh, yeah. to uh, to do that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yes. There's something like 58 adaptations of A Christmas Carol. Like, we will not falter from having too many. <laughs> That's right. We could literally talk about this indefinitely every year. But so. it is a really good case study for adaptation to say, like, how many ways can we tell the same short yes. story? 58 apparently and still going because I bet there's quite a few in development I mean the mere fact that these films carry on being funded is is you know shows the kind of uh, the kind of um, and quite easily like yeah. a Christmas film always makes money this has cultural appeal and awareness everybody understands the story yep. kind of makes sense to remake it every couple of years yep yep yeah. yeah no exactly I think that that's um 
uh, yeah. So, so there'll still be plenty to talk about. Um, yeah. All right. So um, we're out of time today. Um, and we're going to be, uh, of course, next week is actually Christmas Day. Um, so I'll be. Why too... today? It's Christmas. Exactly. I'll be too busy, like, you know, opening my window and uh, throwing purses of money to lads in the street next week to. Uh, and carrying large turkeys around. Carrying like large this. turkeys around, exactly. Uh, to be having a broadcast next week. But, um, uh, but mm-hmm. we'll, uh, we'll be back. Not yet 100% sure whether we'll be back because then the following week, of course, is New Year's Day. Uh, and I'm pretty sure we'll be back, but I have a friend from the U.S. landing that night. I just have to figure out if I'm picking her up from the airport, but I'm free that whole day. So if we right. want to do another time. So that we, day, we'll, we, we might we might figure earlier. something out for uh, for New yeah. Year's Day. But, um, but we're uh, changing tack, everybody. We're, we are. We're leaving Christmas Carol. We're leaving the Christmas Carol. And I want to go back. We, there were a couple other uh, openings that we wanted to do in our opening sequence. Um, so we're going to come back to our opening sequence and we're going to look at Dune. Um, so we're going to do we're going to do the Dune, the opening of Dune, the book. Um, and we're going to do we're going to do at least the David Lynch film and the modern the, the recent film. Um, do yeah. we want to do do we want to do the. Oh, I forget that the miniseries that happened. There's because there's that there's that other big Dune adaptation that happened in the middle. If um, we can find it, if I'll we have a look. It. Yeah, is that the James McAvoy one? No, I don't remember. I never saw that one. I don't yeah. think. I forget. Yeah. I, I I I don't remember where I was or what I was doing, but I missed that. But I did miss. And it. we'll also talk about the new Dune trailer because that has also come out and yeah. is worth discussing, yeah. even separate from openings. Just we'll just look at it for a little bit because it sounds pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So basically, watch this space. Plan on New Year's Day, same time. And if it's different, Corey will tweet it out and we'll put it on all the socials. Exactly. All right. Very good. Well, thanks okay. everybody for joining us. Uh, this was a, a, a fun uh, Yuletide discussion, as always. Um, and uh, we will see you guys after the new year. Thanks, Merry everybody. Merry Christmas. Bye Happy now. Holiday. <laughs>